The cross of Jesus Christ is really at the center of world history. And the cross has two primary messages for us to understand. One, the cross is a demonstration of God's incredible love for us. But two, the cross tells us how serious sin is. Sin must be judged. And Jesus is on the cross being judged for our sins as though he committed all of our sins. It's an incredible understanding, an incredible dramatic moment in world history. And it's today, the crucifixion of Christ on Walk in Truth. These are the teachings of Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. Before we get started with today's message, we wanna let you know that this is a listener-supported ministry. Call with your gift at 844-48-TRUTH. Now, here's Pastor Michael. We're gonna look at the cross today. We're gonna look at uh, the finality of what Jesus went through from John chapter 20. And we're going to look at the sin debt that he paid in full. It is finished. Your salvation has been paid 100% in full. That's one of the great doctrines of Christianity, by the way. You cannot add one single thing to your salvation. The sin debt is paid completely, entirely. The Greek word, some of you know it, is tetelestai. It means paid in full. Have you ever... Uh, gotten some of you who have been around for a while have you ever gotten one of those uh, books where you've been paying on a car or something like that and then you finally make that final payment and you know it's been paid in full and you actually own it how many of you experienced that before that's a pretty good feeling isn't it because you know you actually own that thing the bank doesn't actually own it anymore you've paid off the debt but I have news for you when it comes to your sin when it comes to your standing before God you can never pay off the debt you can't be good enough, you can't do enough good things because God is perfectly holy and he requires 100% perfection. And all of us have sinned and we all fall, fall short of the glory of God. And so the question then becomes, well then how does God forgive us? How can we enter into that fellowship with a God that in the Bible is described as a consuming fire? He is indeed holy. Sometimes we have these character, characterizations of God that he's some gentlemanly uh, uh, older man up in heaven with a long beard and he'll just pat us on the back one day and say, you know, you, you did a pretty good job. But that's not the case at all. God is holy. God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. How can we be in right standing? How can on that day when God will judge the living and the dead, how can we stand before God righteous? How can we be acceptable in the beloved? That's the question. Let's pray. Lord, every time we come before your holy word, we should come with reverence and awe at what you've done for us. And we do that this morning collectively. We bring our hearts to you. We bring our concerns. We even bring the fatigue and sometimes the questions that we have. We pray that the cross will as we look at it once again, will cause us to endure whatever we're going through, Lord. We will see your love. We'll see your great love. Though you are holy, you are so loving. You are love. And you demonstrated your love at that cross. We pray that we'll see it for what it is and that we will indeed take up our cross and follow you, that we'll die to self, that we'll endure and run this race to bring glory to you for all you've done for us. 
that you've made us acceptable to you by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and through his resurrection from the dead. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 5, if you'd look at it, starting in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book. The New King James says a scroll, but uh, it's more accurate to say a scroll because books were not even around at this point. Written inside and on the back, Revelation 5.1, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? The word worthy is deserving or suitable to open the scroll and to break its seals. Verse 3. And no one, no man in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Now we know, having studied the book of Revelation, that this particular scroll, most scholars agree, is the title deed of the earth. It, is, it has to be broken, the seals must be broken to complete or to consummate our redemption, the redemption of our bodies, to complete God's plan, if you will. And notice in verse 3 that no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to even look into it. There's a universal search done, and no one is able. It reminds us of Romans 3.10, where it says, There is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one worthy to open this title deed, to break its seals, to unfold God's plan of consummation. And John, who's the author of the gospel that we've been studying, says, and I began to weep greatly. The idea of the words here is he was weeping uncontrollably. He is crying or wailing because Here's the re-emphasis. No one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This is disaster for mankind if this scroll cannot be opened. One of the elders said to me, Stop stop weeping. Behold, or look, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has, that's past tense, overcome. So as to open the book, And its seven seals. He has gained the victory. And I saw between the throne, with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing. Now remember, he was called a lion just a verse before. Now he's called the lamb. And notice he's the lamb as if slain, yet he's alive, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The horns speak of his strength, the eyes, his uh, omnipresence, the seven spirits of God speaks of the Holy Spirit here. And he came, and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, verse 7. And when he had taken the scroll or the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying... Worthy art thou to take the book or the scroll and to break its seals. For you or thou wast slain and did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
John, when he realizes what's at stake, he begins to weep and then he sees this lamb as though slain. And last week, remember, we looked at this lamb, Jesus Christ. If you want to turn to the Gospel of John, you can right now. We saw him scourged. We saw him go through this terrible suffering where he was beaten beyond human recognition, where he was scourged. The nickname for scourging, by the way, uh, was nicknamed the half-death. They would scourge you in order to bring you really to the point of death, but just barely holding on. And this is the point we are at in the Gospel of John. Jesus has been scourged. He has been, uh, you could say, mortally wounded. And now they are going to finish the job. And so they took Jesus, John 19, 17, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. I want you to see in John 19, 17 that Jesus goes out and your Bible says he went out bearing his own cross. Uh, there's a little debate about this, but most believe that Jesus would have been bearing the cross bar that uh, would then be attached or affixed to the vertical uh, part of the cross. Uh, we are told in doing a little research on this that that bar weighed as much as 100 plus pounds to carry it. And often what they would do with crucifixion victims is they wanted to parade them through the city down the Via Dolorosa or the Way of Suffering. And there they would put a placard uh, on the top of the cross affixing it to the cross and that placard would give the crime of the individual. It would say what they had done wrong, the crime against the state in order to suffer their punishment. And as Jesus goes the way of sorrows, remember he has been beaten so badly that he is really uh, close to death at this point. And remember, he can't even carry the crossbar. And someone has to be brought into service. You remember who it was? Simon the Cyrene to carry the cross of the Lord. What a privilege. And Jesus there is bearing his own cross as he goes to a place called Golgotha. We happened to stand at this site not so long ago. And it, you look, uh, they've done some research in Israel to try to find the spot. And uh, a man named, Sar uh, I think it was Sergeant or Colonel Gordon, found a spot outside the city walls called Gordon's Calvary. And there, if you look into the stone, you will see what looks like the shape of a skull. You can see a couple of cut-out eyes and something that looks like a nose. And it appears that the crosses were actually along the street, not on top of the hill. And so if you were on a cross right in front of Gordon's Calvary, the shape of the skull would be actually directly behind you. And of course, the sh shape of the skull reminds us of what crucifixion was all about. It was about death. You had come there to die. Now, they didn't find skulls here because in Israel, they would bury the skulls, of course, but they found the shape of the skull, and that's why it was called Golgotha in Hebrew. And there's the place that Jesus was brought. He was brought there, if you look at verse 17, the first part of the verse, bearing his own cross. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we are so, uh, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before, before him endured the cross. He bore the cross for us, 
though the writer of Hebrews says he despised the shame. You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. Did you know God's name is not mentioned once in the book of Esther, but his fingerprints are all over it? The famous verse, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this, tells us that Mordecai sensed God moving in the darkest of times. This is a story about ordinary, everyday people taking a stand and becoming vessels through which God saved a nation. The story is filled with satire and seriousness, but it ends with celebration as God turns things around for good as only He can. Get your copy of Pastor Michael Lance's teaching of the entire book of Esther for such a time as this. Yours as a thank you for your financial gift of $30 or more to Walk in Truth. Visit walkintruth.com today. That's walkintruth.com. Now back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walk in Truth. Colonel Gordon found a spot outside the city walls called Gordon's Calvary. And there, if you look into the stone, you will see what looks like the shape of a skull. You can see a couple of cut-out eyes and something that looks like a nose. And it appears that the crosses were actually along the street, not on top of the hill. And so if you were on a cross right in front of Gordon's Calvary, the shape of the skull would be actually directly behind you. And of course, the shape of the skull reminds us of what crucifixion was all about. It was about death. You had come there to die. Now, they didn't find skulls here because in Israel they would bury the skulls, of course, but they found the shape of the skull, and that's why it was called Golgotha in Hebrew. And there's the place that Jesus was brought. He was brought there, if you look at verse 17, the first part of the verse, bearing his own cross. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we are uh, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He bore the cross for us, though the writer of Hebrews says he despised the shame. And then we're encouraged from the writer of Hebrews to think on Jesus when we go through our own problems so that we won't give up and lose heart. Since he endured the cross, we need to take up our cross in the sense of dying to self and living for his glory and, and live for him. And so the writer of Hebrews says, you endure because he endured, because he's going to finish what he began in you. I am confident of this very thing, says Paul that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So part of the cross is for us to see that Jesus sacrificed himself on, on it for us, but part of it also is for you to endure, for you to keep going, for you to know that he who began a good work in you will complete it. He will bring it to pass. And that is why he went to the cross, for the joy that was set before him. And so Jesus is going the way now of suffering down the Via Dolorosa to the place called the place of the skull. And there, of course, we are told that they crucified him, John uh, 19.18, with him two other men on either side and Jesus in between or Jesus in the middle. 
Paul writes in Colossians 1.20, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And though you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. The reason Jesus died on the cross was to pay our sin debt so that you would be free from accusation on the day of judgment. So that you could stand before God holy and righteous. And by the way, that's the only reason that we are right before God this morning is because Jesus paid the debt that we could not pay. He went to the cross and died for us that we indeed might live. And here... He is crucified, verse 18, with two other men. You know, they were two criminals, one on either side, and Jesus was in between the two. Perhaps this was a way to mock him even further, putting him in between two criminals to say, you see, he's a criminal too. We know from the, the book of Luke that as people were walking by, they were mocking Jesus. They were hurling insults at him. And you might remember that the two thieves began to join in. And they were saying, if you are the Christ, then save us and save yourself. You remember they were hurling abuse at him. Can you imagine being there that day, being one of the thieves on the cross and turning even in your dying moments to join the crowd in abusing and mocking the Lord? But you remember something happened to one of the criminals. And sometimes we read accounts and we see, well, what, what actually happened here? It says that the two were mocking him. But I think Luke adds this further detail that one of them repented or came to his senses. And he, said, and he turned to the Lord and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And remember the sign above Jesus' head was that he is Jesus of Nazareth, the what? King of the Jews. And that's what the Jews were rejecting all along. But one of the thieves came to his senses. Now you remember, they were close enough so that they could talk to each other. Remember, one of the thieves said, we are here, the one that came to his senses, because we deserve to die, but this man has what? Done nothing wrong. So they could have a conversation. Do you think that the one man who never repented heard the other man say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Isn't it amazing that to our death, some people can stay hardened? The guy knew he was going to die, but he never turned. One man turned the other man didn't. That's kind of the irony of this scene. Sometimes we only think of the one man who turned and we say, well, praise the Lord. That means that even in our dying moments, we can repent, that God's not finished with us. But yet there was another man. That intrigues me even more. Who was there? Who saw the fact that Jesus, when he was being lifted up on the cross, perhaps even when the nails were going through his wrists, said, Father, forgive them. Well, they know not what they do. He never saw Jesus spit back at the people who were cursing at him. He never saw Jesus trying to mock the people who were mocking him. And he came to his senses. He said, this man is different. This man must be the Christ. And he turned, and with these simple words, what did he say? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. God is so awesome. And so forgiving that even at the last moment, we can turn and say, Lord, remember me. You know, um, 
As a pastor, I've had a lot of experiences in hospitals. And I've seen two groups of people. I've seen a Christian. I'm not going to say that Christians are not afraid to die, but I've seen that certain peace with them, that certain uh, understanding that they knew where they were going. And then I've seen other people, people who were not believers, and to their dying breath, reject the Lord, push away this king who died for them. And Pilate, verse 19, wrote an inscription. Also, he, put it on the, he wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross. As it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, the NIV says, Pilate had a notice prepared. He may not have wrote it himself. And he fastened it to the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And notice it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Now, this particular understanding of the trilingual nature of the sign is important because this means that salvation, of course, is for everyone. Christ died for our sins, but he also died for the sins of the whole world. And anybody who was passing by that day who could read a sign, whether it was in Latin, Hebrew, or Greek, could read what it said. And Pilate really unknowingly wrote that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the king of the Jews. And the Jews weren't too happy about this, 21. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate, I think, has had enough with these people. He says, What I have written, I have written. I've had enough, if I can read between the lines of you guys. Enough. I've, I've kowtowed to you. I've acquiesced to your demands. Enough is enough. And by the way, the tense of the language could read this way. Literally what Pilate said, Greek perfect tense. What I have written, I have written, and it always will remain written. Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews. And you could imagine the Jews were not pleased about this. To the very end, they wanted to make sure that he was not touted as the Messiah. Does it make you wonder what Pilate was thinking as this inscription was prepared? Do you think he was writing it a little bit because he wanted to get back at these guys? I don't know for sure. Verse 23. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts or four shares, a part to every soldier. And also the tunic or the undergarment. Now, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. That would be close to the body. And they said, therefore, to one another, 24, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be, speaking of the undergarment or the seamless part, that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments, notice, among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's Psalm 22, 18. 1,000 years before Jesus was ever born. Hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented, David, the psalmist says, they cast lots. They divided my garments. Notice how uh, specific this is. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Incredible detail. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. 
probably four soldiers included in this uh, crucifixion squad. And it shows you the callousness of the world. That a man could be dying right above them or right in front of them. And what were they doing? They were gambling for his clothing while he was still alive. Yes, it is a dark, humiliating, and tragic scene. And I hope you can feel the pressure and the tenseness and the shame that our Savior is going through, and he's doing it for you and for me. There he is hanging on the cross, bearing the sin of the world, bearing the pain and the weight of that sin, all while people are belittling him and mocking him and wagging their heads at him and daring him to come down from the cross. But you know, he stayed on that cross. It wasn't nails that held him there. It was love, love for you and for me. And we should never forget what he went through to save us. Well, you may have guessed it by now. I'm Pastor Michael Lance, and I'm really grateful that you're taking time to listen to these messages on Walk in Truth. The Word of God has so much power, and the gospel message has the power to save. And remember, you can listen to these complete teachings as you go to the website. Many other ones are there as well at walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com. I want to give you a reminder that we'll get back to the series in the book of Esther next week. But it's obviously very important to our faith to observe Holy Week and focus in on what Jesus went through in his triumphant resurrection. Now, tomorrow is Good Friday. It's amazing. We conclude the teaching in John 19. Jesus is hanging on the cross. It's a dark moment. And what happens next is crucial to the future for all of mankind and especially all believers. We're going to look at that tomorrow. Until then, I'll see you. May God bless you. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, encouraging you to reach out with God's truth to all people.